Our scripture today is Luke chapter 24. Hey, could I get that one and that one on me so that they all disappear? So I can't see any of them. I think it's like one and two and three, something like that. Hey, there we are. All right, cool. Um, Okay, our passage today is Luke chapter 24, verse 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground. But the man said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the disciples. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So I am 41 years old, and every time... I contemplate every year the resurrection and I read the story of Jesus and I watch it portrayed in line art or whatever. I gotta be honest, I, I see something different and new. And I, I before we get going today, I mean I've I've already I've already preached this sermon once today out in the field, and it was hot, let me tell you. Um but before I talk about that, I, I, I wanna I wanna tell you like I know on, on, on Easter and Christmas, we get a lot of Christians who, who only show up to make their parents happy, and I'm, I'm really glad you're here. And maybe you've walked away from Christianity, and I understand that. Um, there's been a bad example of Jesus for a very, very long time, and it makes sense sometimes that people walk away. But what I want to tell you is this. Never stop contemplating Jesus. Never stop thinking about why do they hate people so much that love the loveless? Why do they persecute and kill the prophets who say what we all need to hear? Why do we take people spreading love and beauty and forgiveness and mercy and do this to them? We always have. And God knows. And God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and then he sent his son. Never stop contemplating Jesus. Think about what that means. Think about what the life of Jesus means. Um, The rest will come. Just focus on Jesus. Don't focus on Christianity. Don't focus on rules. Don't focus on church. Focus on Jesus for a bit, if that's where you're at, okay? Um, Let's pray, and then let's jump into this passage, shall we? Father, thank you for this this place and these people. I thank you that we are finally back together on Easter sunrise, uh, on on Easter morning in this space. It's been a very long time, and and it's a privilege, it's a blessing to gather here in your name as your people. You have shared with us your name and your identity. You have shared with us your entire body. You call us when we gather together your body. And uh, thank you. We're not worthy of that. We love you, Father. Be with us this morning as we, as we, uh, as we talk about what the resurrection means. In your name, amen. Okay, so I'm going out way out into left field. My wife and I, when we first got married, there was this movie that we loved. It came out in 2006, and we saw it on opening night. And we were big fans of it, and we still are big fans of it, and it's called Little Miss Sunshine, right? Adorable movie. 
Um, it's a family movie. It's like, sort of. There's a movie about a family. It's a movie about a family. We'll start there. Um, and the family's having all the family stuff. You know, there's fighting. There's, there's identity crisis. There's, um, there's struggles with love. There's death. And in, in the midst of this whole thing, there's a family trying to show a little girl a really, really good time, right? And, and the whole time this movie is going, there's this, um, there's this character played by Paul Dano. And Dano, Dano, who knows? Um, and he's wearing this yellow shirt, and it says, Jesus is, and you can't tell what it says underneath, because he's standing like this, and, uh, or he's carrying a box, or he's just leaning on the seat. And you can always read it said, Jesus is, and it never shows, says what it is at the bottom, um, and, and this is an interesting character, this kid, because he, he's been reading a lot of Nietzsche, and so he decided to take a vow of silence because he read Nietzsche, and he's trying to make sense of life, he's having a bit of an existential crisis, he's really, really mad, teen angst, grunge rock kind of stuff going on in his brain, and, uh, and at one point, though, he's laying on the bed at this pinnacle part of the movie, and, and he's sort of figuring things out, and the camera begins to pan out, and this is the shot that it shows. Jesus was, and it backs out, and it says, Wrong. And the whole time you're like, what does it say? What does it say? Oh. So, like, and you see it, and you're like, oh. And, and, and I have thought about this shirt for years because it's interesting to me because I, I never hear people say this. I've literally never heard anyone say Jesus was wrong. I think the shirt is fascinating. It, it, it begs a lot of questions. What would he be wrong about? Like what? Loving your enemies? Like what was wrong? Is it our perception of Jesus being wrong because of the way we think is right and we look at if, if, if our default of right is this and Jesus is something totally other, perhaps our view is that Jesus is right. And so there's this whole thing. And it raises all kinds of questions about like wrong about what? What did it even mean for, for the world if Jesus was wrong? How would we ever know who was right anyways? With the things that Jesus is talking about, how would we ever know who's right? Now, that's what I want to talk about today. In the first century Jewish thought in Second Temple period, there is this general understanding and belief in the resurrection, except for the Sadducees, and we've talked about that. The vast majority of the Israelites since the time of Daniel uh, believed in resurrection. They believed it was coming. They believed several different things at several different times, and Jewish thought, if you follow it from ancient times all the way up to the New Testament and, and, and that period, you can watch it shift and change. So at the very beginning, Daniel's writing about these ideas of of resurrection, he talks about a son of man who's going, to, who's going to stand before God and be judged, and he's going to represent, and, and he talks about all this, and he mentions resurrection, and so the general thought was that God would one day resurrect a new leader for Israel um, at first, that was the thought, and, and it, perhaps it's, you know, you picture Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, perhaps it's, it's, perhaps it's Moses, perhaps it's Isaiah, right, and, and they're thinking, who is it going to be, and and so at the Mount of Transfiguration, when these two prophets appear next to Jesus, that makes sense to them because God's going to resurrect somebody to lead. Um, and, and they're not sure who it's going to be, but this person is going to sort of like um, lead Israel. And the idea of resurrection in that time was vindication, that God would vindicate somebody by resurrecting them and say, they are right. Now, we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But as time moved forward in the Jewish thought, it actually, it actually shifted and changed to become more of a nationalistic idea that God's people were all going to be raised. And in the first century, they believed that God's people would be raised, and that's all that would be raised, and that's how they believed things would sort of go in the future. And, um, and the world would then see at resurrection who is right. Because for the Jewish people, resurrection is not just some happy ending. It's not just to like a, a make things right at the end. It is a meaning. It is, it's a statement. It, it, it means this person is vindicated. This person is right. 
in, in the way that they followed God. All the Jewish people in their minds thought that their role in the world was to represent God, to live as if the, the people watching would look at you and, and know what God is like, okay? It's called the Imago Dei. It's an image of God. It's like we were created like human idols, right, to, to walk around and represent God. When they look at us, they should be looking at Jesus. That's who we're following. That's who we're trying to be like. And so the general idea was that at resurrection, whoever God resurrected, the world would know that they were right. They would be vindicated. So if God raises the Jewish people again and all their ancestors and sets everything right again, their their thought process was all the pagan nations, the Romans, everybody would know that this little minority oppressed people group is actually God's chosen people and that they are right and this is how we should live. And the world would know. And then, as they would say, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Yahweh is God. And and their goal was... um, to bring about somehow this resurrection. And so they're all doing different things to bring about resurrection at different times. There's prophets saying, we need to do this. And there's, there's teachers of the law saying, we need to do this. By the first century, there's this group of Pharisees who say, well, if we want to bring about the resurrection of God and set everything right again and, and throw the Romans off our backs, we all need to obey the law, all of us. We all need to align ourselves with the Torah and the law and live by it. And if we all do that, then God will resurrect everything and make everything right again. And so the, and by any means necessary, we should do this. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna persecute everyone who doesn't live by the law. And we're going to shun them. We're going to confront them. We're going to ostracize them. Uh, if you're Paul, you're just going to round them up and start killing them. And this is what we're going to do with people who are keeping God's resurrection from coming because we want the world to know that God is right and that we are his people and the whole world would come and bow down. So this is how they're thinking about resurrection. Resurrection for them is a vindication of who is right. In other words, who lived in a way that shows us the face of God. That's what resurrection is about for the ancient Jewish people. It's not so much that for modern day sort of Christians, we sort of uh, have let this fall by the wayside, but I think we should pick it up and look at it. This is the idea of resurrection. Now, I want you to imagine that you are sort of a judge, and you're looking out over a whole group of students, and one of them, you've asked them all maybe to write the same paper, and they're all describing this thing, but one of them has gotten it right. And you're not sure, and you're, you're judging, and you're looking out, you're trying to figure out which one is right, and then at one point, you gather all the students like this, and you get up and, and, and just picture God and, and, and standing there saying, okay, I, I, I was present, I saw all of it, and I'm gonna raise up the one who I believe best represents me, or best represents the top. This one is right. It's this, you're making a judgment, you're looking at it all, and you're deciphering, this one is right. In their minds, this is how, sort of, this is what resurrection would mean. You raise somebody up, and and they are vindicated. Their teachings, their life, the, the decisions that they made, the followers that they gained, and the mission that they were on, that is exactly what God wanted. And that's what resurrection meant, okay? Now, of course, we know that God raised Jesus, and the religious and political leaders of Jerusalem totally rejected him. But there are plenty of people that God's people would follow if God raised them up. There's plenty. All right? There's all kinds of people in the Old Testament that, that if you were to raise any one of them up, all of Jerusalem, all of Israel would gather and say, our king is back. If it's David or it's Moses or it's Abraham or it's Isaiah or Elijah, he's back. We're going to follow this person. But God raised Jesus and nobody wanted to follow him. Because we have problems with the way Jesus represents God. We have a problem with it. Because it doesn't align oftentimes with what we want God to be. And so let's talk about this. Let's, let's, 
I guess this whole sermon is centered around sort of a quandary. What would happen if God had raised somebody else? What would that mean? Because the person that God raises, you look at them, you look at their life, that's what you should know. But also, not that, they also determine God's ministry in the world. Not only that, um, our ministry because we are God's people. And so what they do is what we should do. So let's talk about this. What if God had raised Moses? Let's start with him. Um, If God had raised Moses, if Moses was right, Moses is the great lawgiver. He leads them through the desert and he's giving them the law and teaching them, helping them build the tabernacle. He's overseeing the whole thing. Um, And if God is like Moses, then God is most concerned with law. That's what God is most concerned with. By the way, every representative, every example I give you today, um, there are examples of this in modern-day Christianity. So think about this as we move through. Um, If Moses was right, if God had raised Moses, that means God is like Moses, and that means God is most concerned with the law. That means obedience and sacrifice and constant working to cover your sins and your shame. That means that sinners need to be put out of the community and punished and put to death. This is what Paul thought, and this is why Paul was traveling around killing Christians. What does this mean for our ministry if if God had raised Moses? For, for, For our ministry as Christians, that would mean... Um, a ministry of law enforcement, right? That we make big lists of rules and we order everyone to live by them. It means making sure that everyone is most focused on avoiding sin. It means there's, there's not really a set-apart people that are here to bless the nations. We are here to police the nations and make sure that they are all abiding by the laws of God. And so God chose to use Moses, but God did not raise Moses because God is not most focused on law. God raised Jesus. Why? Because, because God is most focused on bearing the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of his people. That's what God is most focused on. We think oftentimes that God is 100% concerned with your spiritual performance. What God is most concerned with is that on the tree of your life that we can look at and we can see love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. These are what God is growing in us. This is what God is concerned with. This is not what Moses was concerned with. You can obey all the laws and still be a a horrible, terrible person. Most people that pursue laws actually end up becoming very difficult to be around. But luckily for us, God did not raise Moses. What if God had raised David, though, the greatest king of all of Israel? Um, accomplished more that he, he was super like he ordered the building of the temple it wasn't built under him it was built under Solomon but it was his idea to build the whole thing but what if what if David the greatest king of Israel was right what if he fully represented God and God raised him up that means that God is more concerned mostly concerned with political ruling that's what God is after maybe building palaces living in palaces in Wisconsin opulence surrounded by powerful people making powerful decisions from the very top and passing those orders down to the people at the bottom, disconnected and ruling from ivory towers and, and parliament buildings far, far, far away, and, and, and throwing out laws upon the people that they have to obey, people who have never met him, people that don't know him, but only know about him, and that's the, that's the closest they get to it. And that would mean for us, if that's, if that's what God is doing, that would mean that God's people, our ministry, should be centered on ruling from the top. Our goal, then, should be to climb the ladders of wealth and power and to coerce those below through edict and law. That we're gonna get into positions of power and we're gonna pass laws and force them, force everyone to live like Christians. And don't get me wrong, there's lots of Christians actually trying to do this. It means that, that, that Christians should strive for the greatest seats of power in the land and rule over people and make them submit to us. But that would mean that our battles, 
are actually one in the political realm, in the political sphere. Um, that eventually the entire world will be forced to submit to the rule of a religion that they do not understand and a God that they do not know. And I don't think that's what God is doing. If that's what God is doing, I think God would have raised King David. I think that's what, what God would have done. But God didn't choose to raise David. God rose Jesus. That's who God raised up. Um, Jesus is not a great political figure. He's just not. If he ran for any office in the land, they'd be like, of course not. Thank you for applying. Um, Caesar is riding in the other side of Jerusalem on a horse covered in leather and gold-plated breastplates with leather like squeaking as he rides. And, and he's riding in with this whole army behind him. And Jesus is coming in the other side. Caesar's riding this stallion and Jesus comes riding in on a donkey from the west side. Okay, Caesar's holding up this sword above his head, the sword of power and violence and coercion and saying, this is why you obey. This is why you became Roman in the first place. And Jesus... Jesus carries no cross. He carried his, uh, Jesus carries no sword. He carried his cross, stumbling up a hill covered in blood, pain, while being mocked, not praised. And, and Caesar is being lauded by political rulers and powerful people singing his praises as he enters in, like the czar of Russia. And Jesus walks in the other side with these peasants who have two articles of clothing and they take off one of them and lay it down for his donkey to walk across while they wave palm fronds. This is Jesus and this is his crowd. This is it. It's not impressive. It's not big. There's no pomp and circumstance. Jesus is not trying to rise to the seats of power on earth. He already sits on the greatest seats in the universe above all and it looks nothing like our seats of power. So not David. What about Solomon? Right, David's son, Solomon, he took a different route than typical political rulers. He was an intellectual. He, um, if God was like Solomon, then God is, is likely, most likely to be found in the halls of academia, science and philosophy, scholarship and history, as well as the self-help gurus and the motivational speakers. Solomon's entire existence was dedicated to finding what he called the good life. He writes books and books and books about it. This is what, this is what Solomon is after. He wants knowledge and wisdom and understanding um, so that he can, he, can, he can finally answer all the questions. That's where he thinks the answers lie. Let me read you some of the things that, that were said about him. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I... I've read many fine leather-bound books from shelves of rich mahogany, and, and I found it comes to nothing, absolutely nothing. And so God did not raise Solomon. That's not what he's doing. Um, if, uh, if God raised Solomon, I mean, this means you have a lot to do. You have a lot to read. You have a lot to understand. There are massive theological constructs that you need to grasp and understand if you are ever going to get near being saved. Um, it means that God's favor rests on the privileged and on those with leisure time to read and pontificate. Um, not, not the single mother holding down three jobs so that she can feed her family. Not the one who actually lives a Christ-like life, right? Um, no, it means that, that the down and out, the mentally handicapped, the uneducated, etc., they're all left out if God raises up someone like Solomon. It means that the most godly and the spiritual titans in our land are all those who are able to grasp these mighty theological constructs and wax eloquent with impressive dialogue and for the outside world, this means debates, intellectual battles. This means us trying to argue you into Christianity. 
Our hope is that you'll lose the argument and then accidentally become a Christian. Um, but God has not raised Solomon. And God is not found in the lofty, highest places of, of academia. There's good work being done to help us understand. But that's not God's focus. That's not the center of his work, as many would let you um, believe. Let me... Uh, Oh, wait a second here. Okay, so the early Christians would actually read um, the writings of Isaiah, and they would point out what Isaiah says about the one who would come, about what he would be like. He wouldn't be what we expect. It says this. It says, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was depressed, and we held him in low esteem. So Jesus was one of them. At the bottom. He wasn't one of them. He was one of them. That's who Jesus was. He was from Nazareth. He was not high status. He was incredibly intelligent. He was a phenomenal teacher, but he always, he always lowered himself to talk to the people. That's what he did. He lowers himself, becoming a servant of all. And so no, God has not raised someone like Solomon or Solomon himself. Let's talk about someone else, Joshua. What if God had raised Joshua, a war hero, right? What if Joshua was right. What if, what if Joshua best represents the attributes of God that we should follow? I mean, when I was raised, I was told to be just like all these men. Be like Moses. Be like David. Be like Joshua. Be like Solomon. But when I read their actual stories, they, they actually weren't very Christ-like. There were moments of their life where you could see the Spirit of God working through them as they make themselves useful. But what I don't see oftentimes is this Christ-like love for those underneath them. What I don't see is this, this, this view of the world that Jesus has. They don't seem to have it. And so this whole time of being raised, they're being, try to be like Joshua. Try to, Joshua, the guy, the violent guy with the swords and like slaughter and the people. Try to be like him. Was Jesus like Joshua? And I, I, I have to ask you, I, I want to be like Jesus. I'm trying to teach my kids to be like Jesus. But what if God had raised Joshua? Let's just pontificate here for a second. If God was like Joshua, the war hero, that means God is a warrior out to destroy his enemies. That's what he's up to. It means that God wants to conquer through force all those who stand in the way of his plan to purge the world of the enemy. And this means that God also would be called, uh, that, that we also would be called to conquer and destroy our enemies, like the crusaders of the 11th and 12th century, like, um, like the colonizers who converted people by force. That would make sense if God had raised Joshua or if we're trying to be like Joshua, but that is not what God is doing. God has clearly raised Jesus, someone very, very different. For the world, this means, um, this means that Christians, I mean, if, if God has raised Joshua, that, that means to the world, we are literally a brutal enemy that they should fear. But we are the servants of the world. That is who God has sent. Let's, Look at the passage um, when, when Jesus is being arrested and Peter's there, the disciples are there, and the, the soldiers are marching in, and, and Peter has this moment where he's thinking, Joshua God, right? I've seen this before. It's time. All the Israelites believed that God was this warrior God. Up until the first century, they believed that one day God would enter in, he'd send his Messiah, this would be a warrior Messiah, and they would all rise up with their weapons and they would overthrow Rome and take their country back and kick them all out and establish God's kingdom through force and it would reign forever and ever in peace through the sword. 
And so the soldiers come marching in to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? Of course, pulls out, pulls out the sword, swings it at a guy's head, takes off his ear. The men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. He drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I can, cannot call on my father and he will at once put away, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? You know why Peter cut off the soldier's ear? Because he feared that his enemies were derailing God's plan for the world. But what Peter didn't understand is that Jesus healed the ear of the soldier because Jesus knew that God's plan for the world included the healing of his enemies. And this is what Peter was not ready to accept. And this is one of the reasons Jesus got killed because we still today are not ready to accept this. I'm trying to contemplate if I should tell a story. My daughter this week was at school and she was talking about loving her enemies, literally talking about following Jesus, the exact words of Jesus. One of the teachers turned and said, what if somebody's coming at you with a knife? What are you gonna do? To my 11-year-old daughter. Now, I'm always shocked at how fast people turn into Satan when you mention following Jesus and how quick they turn around and say, and say you're trying to follow Jesus? They're gonna break into your house. They're gonna rape your wife. They're gonna kill your kids. They're gonna, they're gonna do all this stuff. Kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them. And you're like, I'm literally just trying to follow Jesus. Things are difficult and it's complicated and there's context and there's so many things but at least we can have Christian instincts to love our enemies. We are still not ready for this. Teachers are not ready to hear this from an 11-year-old girl. She's about to go hear it from Pastor Tommy. Nicely, lovingly, I'm gonna go meet with her. Um, <laughs> but God loves his enemies and God sees, love, sees and loves every nation. God looks past our imaginary borders and boundaries and he sees his world, his world who is already ruled by Jesus and they just don't know it yet. And they will. So God didn't raise a military, strongman, hero, leader like Joshua. What about Elijah though, right? Just a prophet, an interesting guy. What, and this is the last one, by the way. What if, what if God had raised the prophet Elijah up or somebody like him? That means God is an ascetic. You know what that is? It's somebody who just who, who, uh, rejects culture and society and moves out and, and makes their own clothes and lives far away, lives in the desert, and they come in once in a while to cast judgment on society, and then they go back out. They're like, I can't stay here because God would never stay here. I gotta go back out here. And we talk about God this way sometimes. Um, and he's too opposed to society then to dwell among us. That means that God's people should reject society. Perhaps we should create our own ecosystem. Maybe we should make our own music and our own, our own like music markets uh, and our own movies and social media and YouTube channels, and, 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 and news stations, and, and maybe not even YouTube channels, maybe, maybe our own YouTube, like our own whole thing, and, and, and we'll just isolate ourselves from the world because God does not want us dwelling with sinners. That's not Christ-like, exactly Christ-like, actually. Um, what this means for non-Christians is that we end up standing far away, we judge them from outside, we don't build relationships, we draw near to them only to cast judgment on what we see, to ridicule, to antagonize, to declare that they are evil and that we are good and our prayers that they one day change being them, stop being them and, and be like us. And it's all very coercive. 
We don't know even what they need. We look at them from afar and we yell what they need. We don't know. You don't know these people. But you guessed it. God did not raise Elijah. God raised Jesus. And Jesus' biggest criticism was centered on the amount of time he spent with sinners. The amount of time he spent with the outcast, the down and out, eating at tables with, with prostitutes and liars, making, making thieves and, and um, uh, people going along with Roman oppression, making them his disciples. This is what Jesus does. He cares not for his reputation. He doesn't care how people look at him. He's gathering up all those at the bottom and he's bringing them in and he's saying, let's build a kingdom out of this. Something that'll, be, that'll, that'll rival anything that they have. And this is what Jesus did. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When God raised Jesus, he changed our understanding of power entirely. Every attribute I've just pointed out is also how modern Western Americans actually want our leaders sort of to be. Subconsciously, we don't like to admit this, but I think deep down, the people that we admire in the world are a lot like this. They're Moseses, they're Elijahs, they are, they're Joshuas and they're Solomons, they're intellectuals or they're political leaders that are powerful or they're wealthy or they're movers and shakers or they, they just do something different. They're out in their own land doing something different. And we all want to be led by these people and we want them. But what we've been given is Jesus. And the problem with Jesus is that his power is not the kind of power we appreciate. It's not what we want. Um, the book of Revelation talks about the resurrected Lord, and it talks about him constantly being clothed in majesty. And we're like, ah, oh, clothed in majesty. That's my leader, clothed in majesty. But when it describes the majesty, it's like, yeah, like a lamb slain. Like a, like a bleeding, hurt lamb walking. This is, this is the representative of our king. The majesty of Jesus is not the wealth, the opulence, the intellect, the military power and might, the coercive nature. These, this is not God's glory, God's majesty. We picture opulence again, but in fact, the author is pointing to Jesus in order to redefine what majesty is. The majesty that Jesus is clothed in looks a lot like the fruits of the Spirit on a regular human being. That's what the majesty of God looks like. It looks like a peasant who just embodies love and forgiveness and mercy. That's majesty. Whatever your pictures of majesty, whatever your leaders you want to follow look like, they don't look like this. That's why we kill people like Jesus. Because it's not what we want, but it is the way out. It is the way forward. It's the way out of all of that that, that we have suffered under. It's like, I think one of the best ways to describe it is like uh, the, the first Indiana Jones movie, The Holy Grail, right? You get in the room, the old dude... Choose carefully. Like, and, and there's all the grails and they're gold and there's diamonds and jewels and they're all bedazzled. And there's this one cup and it's, it's ugly. It's cracked and it's wooden. It's not made of anything special. It's made by a carpenter. And it's the one that he chooses. And he chose wisely, right? So the outside of the, this is like Jesus, the outside of the cup. It's not special. There's nothing attractive about it. There's nothing that we look at and be like, I want that. I'm going to follow Jesus because I want that. But when you drink from the cup, resurrection life pours out of it. The world feels it. And people, people are made whole. And it's shocking and it's surprising every single time. I thought the way to make things right was to go up, and it's not. It's actually to go down. 
That's actually how it works. That's how the majesty of Jesus looks in the presence of, our, of, 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 of the preferred leaders of Jesus. When God raised Jesus, God revealed himself as the opposite of how we thought of him. It means that God's not far from you. He's close all the time, never abandoning you. God is not angry with you. He's in love with you. And he can't believe that you don't understand that. God is not interested in violence or punitive measures against you. He wants to reconcile and be identified with you. He wants you to bear his name. Think about that. God is not obsessed with your spiritual performance. He's just not. He wants to bear fruit in you so that you can have love, joy, and peace, and all of the things that are promised that come with it. He has also raised us up out of our old definitions of power. Resurrection power comes from the bottom up, not the top down. This is how it works. Resurrection power comes from the, from the bottom up. In a world of, of production and pomp and circumstance, we would think that God would raise somebody powerful and mighty that we would look and be like, yes, that's somebody I just want to be like. But God has raised up somebody that is very, very, very hard to wrap our minds around. And God has placed him on the throne of the universe and said, this is the world's true king. Act accordingly. And so those of you who are here and, and you don't feel acceptable. You feel too poor, too weak, too stupid, too scared, too much like a sinner. I, I, all I want to do is look into the eyes of you today and tell you, do you know why that's okay? Because God raised specifically Jesus. God didn't raise Moses, so it's okay. God didn't raise Joshua, don't be afraid. God didn't raise Solomon, it's all right that you don't fully understand everything that's happening. God didn't raise Elijah. It's okay to be at the table with people that you don't see eye to eye with. It's okay to be in their presence and to build relationships from which God can work. It's okay. And so all those people demanding these other things of you, I wanna say to you, they think God has raised somebody else, but he hasn't. And so all that they are demanding of you, all that they are requiring of you, all the ways that they look at you and say, you're not a Christian. You can just look at them back and say, I mean, when God raised Jesus, it kind of kicked the door open for me. This is what God is doing. Okay? I think you're confused about who God raised. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen the way he lives? Have you seen the way that people like you hated him? And for me, this is Easter. God took the whole thing and flipped it upside down. So as I'm talking about this, as the sun is coming up this morning, this is the picture. Everything is new. You don't have to pursue it the way that you had before. All these constructs, all the, all the demands that religious leaders have made of you, all the ways that they have ostracized you and pushed you out and not sat at the table and listened to understand you, Jesus is doing that. And people at the bottom following Jesus, they're doing that. Find them and listen to them. Throw off the weights and the chains of those people who are pushing you down with their thumb because God has raised Jesus. And, 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 and that means, hold up, what is this about? God has raised Jesus. And this is what Jesus looks like. He's not sitting on a throne. He's not swinging a sword. He's not counting his money. He's not sitting with a sack of books saying, excuse me, I'll be right with you. I'm solving the problems of the universe. No, he's entering into, he's likening himself with these revolutionaries who are trying to overthrow Rome. 
And he's like, however you look at them, you can look at me like that too. That's totally fine. I identify with the low and the down. Why? So that I can save them. And it doesn't always work, but sometimes it does. Right? This is what Jesus is doing. And so all of this is for you so that you can find hope and that you can know that you are enough, that Jesus is already working in your life and the lives of the people around you, and he wants to use you. It's a whole new world, and, and, and power doesn't look like it did before. And as much as they're trying to convince you that it does, that you need to get to the top to make change, you don't. Because God's at the bottom. Join him down there. Happy Easter, Watermark. That's what this is about. Happy Easter. You're free. You don't have to climb anything. There's no stairs. There's no ladder. There's nothing to build. God is with you and active and working through you. That's my Easter message. That's all I got. So if you would stand with me, let's go out like this. Let's say the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to go out and hide some eggs for the kids at our houses and all that stuff, and I'm going to set up a parent-teacher meeting, and let's, <laughs> and let's pray this prayer together, shall we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Nice and loud. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the best Easter of your life.